Once more, we'll be in a variety of places in the scriptures, but if you want to turn to two passages in particular tonight, you can go with me to Daniel chapter 9. And then maybe you can put your bookmark in Matthew 24. And those will be two places in particular that we'll get to tonight. Now, we are in a study of Revelation, although the last several weeks I've kind of taken a time out, and I'm trying to give you sort of a big-picture overview of Bible prophecy, sort of a crash course, and, and I don't know, it may be more of a crash than course, <clears throat> depending on just some of the nature of what we've been talking about. It's pretty, pretty in-depth stuff, and I've tried to not drown everybody in the process, but I'm going somewhere. And the reason for sort of this time out is because I want you to understand that a person's interpretive framework as far as prophecy is concerned really comes to bear on the way that they see the events of Revelation when they, when they view that happening. For example, chapter 6 through chapter 19 in Revelation, I believe, is a prophetic unfolding of the events that will happen during the tribulation period. And so I'm, I'm trying to show you how I've come to that understanding or how those who hold to a premillennial view of last things, how they come to that understanding. And it begins in the Old Testament. Because, you know, Scripture, we, we interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture. And so there was a whole host of other Scriptures that had been given prior to John's revelation there on the Isle of Patmos. And Revelation is the last book of the Bible, the last um, revealed, inspired book of Scripture that's recorded in the canon. And so you go back into the Old Testament, the promises that God made to Israel, and, and where God has revealed his redemptive plan for humanity, and how all of that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And yet there are so many promises in the Old Testament that have still yet to be fulfilled I'm thinking of promises as far as a kingdom is concerned, uh, the Messiah's kingdom on earth. There's still so much to be fulfilled in the future and will be fulfilled in that coming millennial reign of Christ. After the tribulation, when Christ comes, he's going to establish a literal kingdom where he will reign for 1,000 years upon the earth. And I take that in Revelation 20 where that is described. I, I view that literally and that's where all of the Old Testament promises that were made to the patriarchs, to David, to the people of Israel, where that's going to be fulfilled in the kingdom of Jesus. So you reach back into kind of where we've been. Um, just by habit, I'm getting ready to scroll my computer, and there's no use for that tonight. So I'm just going to do this right here so I don't get distracted. <laughs> um, the foundation of biblical prophecy is really the first point, and I've really spent a couple of weeks dealing with just some foundational issues. I know you've got some things there in your introduction there. If you want to fill in the blanks, keep in mind that the future, it's not a matter of knowing what, but really it's all about knowing who. Obviously, there's some things that we do need to know in terms of the what, but more important than that, it's all about knowing who. And I was having a conversation with someone earlier today, and we were talking about prophecy and the practicality of it, and, and how does this help fuel us in the mission that we've been given to make disciples? 
Why should it serve as an incentive for us to give to relief efforts? For people in Burma who need the gospel, why should we go? Why should we send? Why should we be evangelistic, passionate witnesses here in High Point? Does prophecy distract us from that, or does it help us in that mission? Well, the truth is, it ought to serve as an impetus. It ought to serve as, as a practical um, fuel for worship and mission in our lives. Especially when you look around and you see the world and the shape that it's in, I feel like without a healthy understanding of biblical prophecy, it'd be easy for us to want to cave in to despair. You may find yourself getting angry when you consider the political landscape today, the social landscape, the cultural landscape. When you see Christianity, it seems to be diminishing in the Christianized West. And you wonder what's happening. Well, when you understand the prophetic scheme of events that are revealed in Scripture, it'll help you not panic, but it'll help you live with confidence because you know that Jesus Christ and his kingdom will prevail and nothing will thwart God's mission from being mission accomplished, mission successful. And so in that sense, it's practical in the way that it encourages us. So really knowing the future is a matter of knowing who. And that's the main thing. So we study biblical prophecy because we love God. And we want to be passionate worshipers of God. And then that second bullet point there, I guess in terms of your introduction, an omniscient God knows precisely what is ahead because he has all knowledge. That's what omniscient means. An omnipresent God is already there. The future is sure because God's already there in the future. And God alone qualifies to tell us what the future involves because God alone is there. He's timeless. He's infinite. He's the I am. Not simply a God who dwells in the present, but he's the God of the past, present, and the future. All at once. So an omniscient God knows precisely what is up ahead. An omnipresent God is already there. And listen to this. An omnipotent God is in control of it all. So we don't have to panic because we have grounds for confidence. The Bible says that our God is the architect of history. Isaiah 46 verse 9, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. So that first bullet point there is where we've been camping out for a couple of weeks, the foundation of biblical prophecy uh, the, the foundational issues I've sort of given these to you. Uh, number one, you need to realize its immense practicality. Uh, it's important that we do realize the practicality of prophecy. And again, to come back to what I said just a moment ago, how I live today is greatly affected by what I believe about tomorrow. And so prophecy is indeed very, very practical if done right. And we want to make sure that we do it right. Not useless speculation so that we can sort of be a bunch of navel gazers. But we want it to have a practical benefit in our lives spiritually to help us love Jesus better, to help us love one another better, and to help us live on mission. And then uh, another foundational issue is remembering the interpretive principles. And I spent a little bit of time talking about those sound principles of Bible interpretation. We call this hermeneutics. And I gave you just some general guidelines. 
And then another foundational issue is recognizing the important passages. It's in, this is foundational that we, we keep in mind these foundational important passages as far as the prophetic scheme of events you know, is concerned. And there are several passages that reveal pertinent information, crucial information about the future. And really there are at least three main sections of the Bible that contain these keys to understanding at least what God has revealed about the future. And those sections are, of course, the book of Daniel, the Olivet Discourse that we're going to look at here in just a few minutes, and then, of course, our current study, the book of Revelation. So we've spent time looking at Daniel, okay? And there are three passages in Daniel that are indispensable when it comes to end times. You've got Daniel chapter 2, and the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and how that was interpreted by Daniel. Remember the multi-metallic image of a man that Nebuchadnezzar saw and how it was really just symbolic of Gentile kingdoms leading all the way up to a final kingdom that would be in place, a final empire in the days when Christ will return and destroy the kingdom of man and establish his own perfect kingdom upon earth. So that's Daniel 2. Daniel 7 is the other passage. And that's an important passage because it's a vision that Daniel himself had. And it's a vision of four beasts. And it covers the same ground that the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2, but it's from a different vantage point. The man made up of all of those composite parts and various types of metals, you know, gold, silver, bronze, iron, this is really the kingdoms of man from man's point of view. Man's pretty proud of what man builds for himself, right? But what does it look like from heaven's vantage point? Well, God shows Daniel how the kingdoms of man are beastly in character. So Daniel has a vision of four beasts, and the fourth one is more terrifying than the other three, and this is symbolic of the kingdom of Antichrist that will be on earth in the last days leading up to the return of Jesus Christ who will destroy Antichrist and just destroy the kingdom of Antichrist okay now the third passage is where I left us two Wednesday nights ago we didn't meet last week but the third passage in Daniel is Daniel chapter 9 and here we're presented with a plan that God has in mind for Israel's future if Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 these are important prophetic passages as they relate to the Gentiles. Daniel 9 is important because Daniel 9 shows God's prophetic plan for the nation of Israel. And so as Daniel chapter 9 opens up, Daniel, uh, he is an old man. The Jews had been in Babylon for roughly 67, 68 years or more. Daniel is reading the prophetic scriptures when something in the scroll of Jeremiah grabbed his attention. It was the prophet Jeremiah who had warned God's people of the coming captivity. How the people would be carried away by the king of Babylon. And how they would be held there for 70 years. And so Daniel had lived through almost all of those years. And so as he's reading from the prophet Jeremiah, he's discovering that the end of those 70 years was close. 
And so specifically, he's probably reading in Jeremiah chapter 29 where the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, my people. I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. Talking about Jerusalem. Talking about the land of promise. And then, of course, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So Daniel's reading that. He realizes it's time for God to bring the Jews back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem, back from captivity, back to what they had been promised. And as he's reading that, it so affects him deep within his spirit that he begins to pray. And so most of Daniel chapter 9 is a prayer prayed by Daniel. And then the answer that is given to his prayer is a prophecy known as the 70 weeks. Okay, so really from verse 24 through the end of chapter 9, verse 27, you have this prophecy of the 70 weeks. In response to his prayer, the angel Gabriel is dispatched from heaven with a message for Daniel. He's been sent from the Lord with the task of giving Daniel insight and understanding a scheme of future events, and then he would help him grasp the significance of it all. So really, Gabriel comes to provide Daniel with this prophetic pattern or a revelation concerning the future. And so you look at verse 24 there in that text, uh, it sort of summarizes the overall purpose that will be accomplished by God after these 70 weeks have passed. Now again, keep in mind weeks here. This is not weeks as in days, seven days, but weeks of years. Literally, these are 70 sevens. 70 seven-year time periods. And these are prophetic because God's going to be accomplishing something during these prophetic years. And so what's the purpose? What's the overall purpose? Verse 24, 70 weeks or 70 sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So there's six core objectives that God's going to accomplish during this particular time period, these 70 sevens. He's going to deal with sin. He's, he's, he's going to atone for Israel's iniquity. He's going to usher in this eternal, everlasting righteousness. He's going to seal up both vision and prophet. That means all of his prophetic plans are going to be brought to fruition and fulfillment. And there's going to be a most holy place that's anointed. What does that refer to? Well, God wants to dwell with his people. You know, our God is a God who wants to dwell with us. Christmas is all about that, right? Emmanuel, what does it mean? God with us. So we don't serve this distant deity who is unconcerned with our lives. No, God has made us in his image, and God desires to tabernacle and dwell among those he's made in his own image. But sin has marred that. Sin has put up a barrier between God and man. So God's got to deal with our sin if he's going to dwell with us. So Daniel is being told here prophetically how God is going to do that. During these 77s, he's going to be working in real time to accomplish his redemptive purposes until it's all worked out. 
So a few things about this. You'll notice first there's a specific period of time that's marked out by God. There in verse 24, 70 weeks, 70 sevens are decreed. That word decreed means to cut out or divide. The idea is that this is a time period that's been divided out because God has determined it. He's decreed, carved out a block of time in which he's going to accomplish some things as far as his purposes, his redemptive purposes are concerned. And then uh, second, this prophecy is directly related to the Jews and to the city of Jerusalem. So notice verse 24 says these 70 weeks are decreed about your people, Daniel, about your holy city, Daniel. So this is not Gentile prophecy. This is relating to the Jewish nation. And then third, the total scene will last 70 sevens. And then you'll notice in the following verses that God has decreed these weeks. He divides them up into three periods. You've got seven weeks, followed by 62 weeks, and then one final week. Okay? So it means 77s, 77-year time periods. And we know that's the case because Daniel had been reading and thinking about the 70-year captivity. 70 years had been determined for Judah's captivity. Those years represented 490 years of Israel's failure to observe the Sabbath law that required the land to lay fallow every seventh year. So they had neglected 70 Sabbath years. So 490 years went by that they had focused on just maximizing their profits as a people serving idols. Greed got the best of God's people. They didn't obey the law. They didn't let the land lay fallow every seventh year. And so what's God doing? He's saying, I'm holding my people accountable for disregarding my law and my Sabbath. Leviticus chapter 25 said, for six years you can sow your fields, for six years prune your vineyards, gather your crops, but in the seventh year the land is to have a a Sabbath of rest. A Sabbath unto the Lord. And so that Sabbath year was the seventh year. And the people ignored this, and so there's one year of captivity for every Sabbath year that they had ignored. Second Chronicles 36 says this, that Nebuchadnezzar took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. They became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia And this was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. So all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So the whole captivity then was not God just being a meanie and kicking his people out of the the land that he promised to give them. No, God's keeping his word. He's disciplining his disobedient people. They're going to be in captivity for 70 years, but when those 70 years are over, God says, I'm going, to bring, I'm going to bring my people back. And so that part, Daniel understands from Scripture. But he's in for a shock because instead of dealing with the 490 years that were in the past that he's been praying about in Daniel 9, weeping over Israel's disobedience in the past, God is going to give Daniel a glimpse into 490 years in the future And these are broken down into 77-year time periods. 
which meant that the ultimate answer to Daniel's prayer would come centuries later. So Daniel is given some perception into the will of God for the future. At the end of these 77s, those six objectives outlined in verse 24 will be accomplished. Sin will be banished. Righteousness will be ushered in. And this is the big picture of what God's going to accomplish. Okay? Now, the last three verses of Daniel 9 present us with the details of the prophecy. And this is kind of where I left off two weeks ago. 77s, this would represent 490 years of future prophecy, years in which prophetic events would happen. So we notice first when it will happen. Verse 25, Daniel is told that these prophetic years would begin from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. So look at verse 25, if you're there in Daniel 9. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks it will be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. All right, so there would be a legal decree that would go out that would allow for the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. The majority of Bible scholars agree that this refers to a decree from King Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., and it's recorded in detail in Nehemiah chapter 2. You remember Nehemiah, cupbearer to the Persian king, had a burden for the city of Jerusalem. The exiles had begun to make their way back. They were living there in the land, but the city was still in ruins. And so Nehemiah has this burden. He wants to see the city rebuilt. He asks for God's favor. He approaches the Persian king, and guess what happens? King Artaxerxes issues an official decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Don't tell me the king's heart is not in the hand of the Lord, and he can't turn it wherever he wants to turn it. So that means you don't need to throw your hands up in utter disgust and panic whenever political leaders and presidents and congressmen and all that, when they act like fools... And you wonder, what in the world is the world coming to? Listen to me. The king's heart is always in the hand of the Lord. And like rivers of water, he turns it with us whoever he wishes. That's what the scripture says. So these 70 prophetic years begins with this official decree to restore and build the city of Jerusalem. Okay? Daniel learns in verse 25 that the city will be rebuilt during a troubled time. There was a lot of opposition that Nehemiah faced in rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. The enemies of God's people didn't want it to happen. By the way, you want to know who ultimately was behind the conflict? Who really, Sanballat and Tobiah and the enemies that are mentioned there in the book of Nehemiah, we're not told this in Scripture, but you know that there's a sinister enemy behind the scenes operating in the shadows who hates the people of God and has from the beginning and wants to undermine and thwart the purposes of God and the plan of God and the people of God, the devil. So don't be surprised when there's so much turmoil when it comes to doing the will of God and the work of God. It's always been that way. And by the way, that ought to be a sign that we're being obedient when we face opposition. Nehemiah didn't let that deter him. And so notice how it's going to continue then. That's when it will begin. How will it continue? Well, from the time that the word goes out to rebuild the city of Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So you have these 
two periods divided, first seven weeks, or seven sevens, that's 49 years. That's followed up by 62 sevens. So 69 weeks of years, um, you do the math, it's 483 years, right? So the first seven weeks, this 49-year period, beginning in 445 B.C., that takes us all the way to 396 B.C., during which time the Jews had returned home, the city of Jerusalem had been rebuilt, and also the Old Testament scriptures were completed. So it's almost as if God has established his people in their land. God has rebuilt the capital city. God has established a temple in that city. He's reestablished his word. And then there's 400 prophetic years of silence until John the Baptist arrives on the scene. So based on this Jewish calendar of 360 days, 483 years from the king's decree in 445 B.C. brings us all the way to 33 A.D. to the very day when Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey in his triumphal entry. And the people were laying down palm branches. And this was fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. You read Luke 19, and Luke 19 tells you how it all went down. Jesus is approaching the city. He's, he's coming into the city, coming down the Mount of Olives. The multitude of disciples begin to rejoice and they praise God and they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd were saying to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're identifying you with the son of David. Jesus answers those Pharisees and religious leaders and says, let me tell you something. If these were silent, the stones would cry out. Because there was no keeping quiet that day about who he truly was. This was the day that Jesus was presented to Israel as Israel's true and rightful king, just the way that Daniel said it would happen. The coming of the prince. And so Jesus comes near the city. Luke 19 says he begins weeping. And here's what he says. He says, the days are going to come when your enemies are going to set up a barricade around you, surround you, hem you in on every side, tear the city down to the ground. They won't leave one stone on top of another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. They didn't recognize the time in which their king had come. And this is despite the fact that more than... 500 years earlier, God had sent Gabriel with this message that specified to the very day when Messiah would be presented to Israel, but Israel rejected Messiah. That's why John says he came into his own, but his own received him not. But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So what does Daniel say? What does the prophecy say in Daniel 9? Well, Verse 26, after the 62 weeks, and again, you've got to keep in mind that this is the 7 and the 62. All of that at this point is, 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 is happening. The anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. Literally, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. 
The word cut off there means to be executed or killed. It was used in Leviticus to describe the penalty for broken law. So here you have this anointed one who's going to suffer the death of a common criminal. That's what Daniel is being told. Verse 26, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. Which, by the way, have you ever considered how everything that Jesus used in his earthly ministry was borrowed? Everything. He made his entrance into this world via a borrowed womb. After his death, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. He said things like this, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. So cut off at his crucifixion, listen, all that he left behind were the clothes on his back, which Roman soldiers wasted no time casting their lots for. Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. Other translations say it this way, he'll be cut off but not for himself. Here is Messiah who is cut off, who's suffering the death of a common criminal, but for the sake of others, but for my sake, but for your sake, but for the sake of the whole wide world. Yes, Israel's rejecting her king, but God's redemptive plan for the world is not going to be thwarted. No, God is the ultimate comeback hero. God is sovereign behind the circumstances. This is the way that salvation is going to be opened up for the Gentiles. Israel's own rejection of their Messiah. So where it begins, how it continues, and then notice where this ultimately is going to end. Where did it begin? When the word went out to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. How it continues? The death of Messiah. Cut off, but not for himself. That brings us to the end of the 69th week. But where will it end? What are we to know about that final week? Again, this is the prophecy of 70 weeks. At the end of the 69, you've got the Messiah. He's been cut off. What of this last prophetic week? So 483 of these prophetic years have already passed. There is still a future seven-year time period in which God is going to accomplish some things. Namely, the salvation of his people Israel. But you will know this is the final week that's referenced there at the end of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's 70th week, this is, this is a prophetic preview of what will happen in the tribulation period. You know what the tribulation period really is all about, folks? God bringing Israel back into the fold. Because God's going to use the events of the tribulation period, it's going to be a terrible time for the people of Israel. But they're going to look to the Messiah that they had rejected and they're going to see him for who he is and they're going to come to faith. And Paul says in Romans chapter 11, in this way all of Israel is indeed going to be saved. <laughs> so there's still something future here to happen in the future. So what should stand out to you when you read this is that there's a gap 
between the end of the 69th week and the start of the 70th week. Now again, not everybody agrees on this. And those that don't agree with me have a right to be wrong. But <laughs> I just say that tongue in cheek. But the thing is, you have to allow for some type of gap. Even those who would hold to an amillennial position, they have to hold to some type of gap because look at what verse 26 says, after the 62, that's implied it's after the 7 also. Messiah's cut off, he has nothing. Now listen to this. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. 70 AD, Titus Vespasian absolutely destroyed Herod's temple. Leveled it to the ground. Jesus said that it would be so destroyed that not one stone would be left on top of the other. And that happened in 70 AD. Roughly 40 years after the events of the crucifixion. So even those who are amillennial have to agree that there is something going on here as far as a gap is concerned. You say, what are you saying? Well, listen to me. Here's, here's what I believe that this is teaching here. That with the end of the 69th week, here you have Messiah. He's been rejected, crucified. Daniel's been told that the temple is going to be destroyed. That happened 70 A.D., Yet there's still a future time element with the 70th week, the final seven years, which means we're living in an indeterminate gap of time that was unforeseen to the Old Testament prophets. And the Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 3 that the church was a mystery in time past, unforeseen to those Old Testament prophets. We're living in this remarkable time in which God is building a church made up largely of Gentiles. But that does not mean that he's cast Israel aside because there will come a time frame when this particular age in which we live will come to a close and the events of Daniel's 70th week will begin. And when will that be? Well, you'll notice that in this passage, there are really two princes that are being referred to. You've got the prince who's cut off, this Messiah. But notice the reference to the prince of the people who is to come. The word here is ruler. Verse 26, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know this is a reference to the Romans. Its end will come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, and desolations are decreed. Now look at this, verse 27. And he, this is going back to this prince of the people who is to come. He will make a strong covenant with many for one week. There's the 70th week, seven years. And for half of the week he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree is poured out on the desolator. So this is reference then to Antichrist who in the last days, and you've, you've heard this, will make a strong covenant with many for seven years. And that'll be a dead giveaway that Daniel's 70th week is well underway. And folks, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, when world leaders talk about making covenants with the nation of Israel and peace agreements with the nation of Israel... That should cause the prophetic antenna of God's people to go on high alert. 
And we've heard a lot of that in the last couple of years, haven't we? Yeah. So I'm just saying, you know, just you hold that in the realm of thinking. You don't say, well, that's what that is. You know, we don't know that. But the, the point is, at some point, it will be identifiable. Antichrist will establish some type of a covenant, some type of a peace agreement with Israel, promising peace. But three and a half years into that, all hell will break loose for the nation of Israel. You know, it's an amazing thing that all the world rulers, they really seem to just be perplexed with the Middle Eastern problem. Everybody wants it on their resume to be the one who brokered the deal to bring peace to the Middle East. How can we get Abraham's warring children to sit down at the table and come to peace agreements? Well, you've got some who say, well, the land needs to be divided up into a Palestinian state and a Jewish state. The city of Jerusalem needs to be petitioned off east and west. The Temple Mount with the Islamic Dome of the Rock there on top of the Dome, there needs to be some kind of concession made, some type of allowance made so that the people of Israel can build. That's their most holy shrine, their most holy site. So it's not outside of the realm of possibility to see some world ruler come onto the stage, the, the, the global stage, broker some kind of deal in which Israel gets a temple. The Palestinians get a state. And it seems like peace has been achieved. But in reality, it's a covenant with death. And three and a half years into it, it will be obvious what this world leader's real aim is. It's worship for himself. So again, let me just say, the events of Daniel's 70th week, I believe that when we get to Revelation chapter 6 and the breaking of the seals, in fact, why don't you just go ahead and look there because this is actually where we're supposed to be anyway. But what's the first seal in Revelation 6 that's broken? When the Lamb opens one of the seven seals, the first seal, I looked and behold a white horse its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. A bow and a crown and he came out conquering and to conqueror. So the breaking of this first seal, I believe, is the very same thing that Daniel 9.27 is referring to with this future antichrist who's making a strong covenant with many for one week thereby ushering in the events of Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation period so someone says okay Israel's rejected its Messiah we're part of the church has the church replaced Israel does God still have a plan for Israel? And the answer to that question, yes, God has a plan for Israel and the church has not replaced Israel. David Jeremiah says this, he says, uh, he quotes Lewis Talbot, who is the founder of Talbot Seminary. <clears throat> he said that one day he was on a train and all of a sudden they came to a stop. 
And he says, Dr. Talbot asked the conductor what had happened, and he was told, we're on a sidetrack. The express is coming, and we had to get off so it could come through. (laughs) And Dr. Talbot said that that's exactly what happened to the nation of Israel. They were on the main line but rejected their Messiah, so God placed them on a sideline as a nation. He calls out individuals, but the gospel express, which we know as the church, is going through. And we're living now on that express in the parentheses of time before Israel gets back on the track. And that's going to happen when Daniel's 70th week begins, which is still in the future. So you could think of this prophecy, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Verse 24 is a summary of what God's going to accomplish Verse 25 gives us information about the first 69 weeks. Verse 26 gives us a picture of the time that we're in now as Israel is on a sidetrack. Verse 27 shows you what is still yet future. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city, will destroy the sanctuary. And again, that happens in 70 AD when Titus and the armies of Rome laid siege to Jerusalem less than 40 years after the nation had rejected their Messiah. Donald Campbell says of that, he says that Titus Vespasian, he led four Roman legions to besiege and destroy Jerusalem. He ordered his soldiers to leave the temple intact, but Jesus had predicted to his disciples that there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And it's said that when a Roman soldier on impulse threw a flaming torch through an archway of the temple, the rich tapestries caught fire, the building then became a raging inferno, the decorative gold melted and ran down into the cracks of the stone floors, And when the remains cooled, the soldiers, in their greed for wealth, literally overturned the stones in search of the gold, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Christ in the Olivet Discourse, which is the passage I want you to look at, Matthew 24. My time is practically gone. Matthew 24. So the Olivet Discourse is, is, is that other foundational passage as far as prophecy. You've got those in Daniel. You've got the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Jesus was leaving the temple complex. He's going away when his disciples are pointing out to him the buildings there in, in the temple, Herod's temple. Verse 2, he answered them, you see all of these, don't you? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They then left the temple complex. They crossed the Kidron Valley. They go up the Mount of Olives to the east of the city. And there as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples come to him privately. And here's what they say. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered them, and listen to what he says. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, 
kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all of these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. What's he referring to? He's quoting directly from Daniel 9.27 here. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to get uh, or to take what's in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas for women who are pregnant, for those who were nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in, uh, might not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And that statement alone right there should show you that he's not referring to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., which was merely a foreshadowing of what would happen later on, much later on, in the future tribulation period. Because here he's describing tribulation on earth that the, that's never, like it's never been. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And then in verse 23, Jesus goes on and, and talks about how if anyone says, here's Christ, there's the Savior, don't believe it. So really in this text, you've got really eight prophetic clues that Jesus says will be true, that will happen. Beginning with tumultuous circumstances throughout the world that will sort of be increasing like labor pains. You ladies who've given birth, you know exactly what those labor pains are, how they, they begin, but they grow in terms of their intensity and the frequency with which they happen. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The beginning of birth pains. So I'm going to stop here. So just kind of keep in mind where we are, all right? Up until this point, we've seen the prophecies of Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, the Olivet Discourse, what Jesus says about the future here in Matthew 24, says the same thing in Mark 13 and Luke 21. And he's describing circumstances Things that will happen during Daniel's 70th week. And I believe what John writes in Revelation chapter 6, in the chapters that follow, this is the same thing. And that's still future. But folks, let me ask you this question tonight, though. Aren't you glad that through Jesus you're more than a conqueror? Through Jesus you're more than a conqueror. And so this really should serve as some type of an impetus for us to be salt, to be light, to not lose our minds when the rest of the world loses its mind, but to live with confidence 
in times of chaos to be salt, to be light. And by the way, the fact that the church is still in the world means that the Lord still has a mission and an objective for the church. And that's to be a witness to a lost and dying world. And may that be true of me and may that be true of you. Let's stand together as we pray tonight, okay? Yes, there's an evil afoot in this world and it seeks to dismantle all that's good. Man's world has been under siege by a dragon and that dragon has blinded man to his true condition. But there is a hero who stepped onto the scene. (laughs) And how has our hero conquered? Through himself being cut off, having nothing. But folks, let me tell you something. The next glimpse that this world gets of Jesus it won't be the bleeding and dying Jesus on the cross it'll be the glorious Christ who's coming to take over and in that day the child who was born in Bethlehem who's the savior of the world who's the coming king in that day the government will indeed be upon his shoulder and in that you and I can rejoice Lord thank you for your word tonight and Lord while we grapple with issues in our own individual lives and circumstances in the world and we think about what's going on with the Supreme Court even now and Lord the possibility that Roe v. Wade could be overturned Lord we pray for that we long for that Lord I pray that our culture and society would understand the sanctity of life not because of a court ruling but because of heaven's ruling and what you've revealed about life and life is precious because the creator gives it purpose and meaning and so Lord may we as the church may we as Christian men and women be witnesses, salt, light and may we live in the confidence of our coming king and the fact that you have these prophetic plans and Lord those plans will be fulfilled they will be accomplished even when it doesn't seem like it to us And there's so much, Lord, that we don't understand, and that's okay. We believe the promises of your word, and that's where our confidence is found. Confidence in the God who has spoken. So, Lord, this week I pray that you would give us an opportunity. Help us to discern the opportunity, Lord, where we can love someone with the love of Christ and share the gospel. Lord, I pray for our families. I pray for those with health needs. God, we pray for our Christmas program this upcoming weekend. Lord, may you be glorified as Christ is lifted up and magnified. Lord, may you draw all people to yourself. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.